Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Kathy Grace and Dr. Kenya Wolf with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Well, hello, everybody. This is Ed's Up. I'm Kathy Grace, and joining me today is Kenya Wolf, and we have a very special guest, Anita Sanchez, who's going to be visiting with us about her life's work and how that has translated into a children's book, award-winning children's book, and how she can bring some insight into what we feel very strongly about today, and that's the protection of our environment. And so I'm going to turn this over to Kenya and let her begin the questioning. And thank you again, Anita, for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So, Anita, in your bio, you mentioned that you love to explore the underappreciated wild places of the world, from glaciers to mud puddles. What has led you to seek out the underappreciated in our world? Well, there's a great Thoreau quote that says, it's not what you look at, it's what you see. And I think I've always found that the closer you look at something in nature, even if it's just something you would ordinarily just walk right past like a mud puddle or a dandelion, the more it has to reveal to you. So these ignored and often unloved parts of nature turn out to be a lot more important than I had originally thought. Just as an example, um, I literally have a book, it's called Hello Puddle. It's about mud puddles. And, you know, who gives a mud puddle a second thought? Unless you're four years old and you've got those cool rubber boots, you know, and you want to stomp in the puddle. But when I came to really look into it, I I happened to come across a puddle that was just packed with tadpoles. And I realized, wow, this is an incredible little micro habitat. And I started watching this particular puddle, which is actually in my driveway. And there were snails and slugs and salamanders. And then Insects came down to drink and butterflies came down to it. And then birds started using the mud for their nests. And the more I researched, uh, for instance, barn swallows who depend on the mud for their nests, their numbers were in decline. And that's directly linked to the fact that it's hard for them to find nest building material, i.e. mud. Mud is almost an endangered species because mud puddles, you know, we used to have dirt roads and backyards and farmyards. And now a lot of our world is paved and mowed and kids don't sploosh around in mud puddles like they used to. So that's an example of something that we ordinarily ignore that turned out to be a lot more important than you might think. Well, your eye for detail is part of, I think, what you can teach us about really observing what goes on in nature. Uh, With our world today and so much discussion around what we have done in the past and what we seem to tend to continue to do, which is putting our environment at risk, how would you propose that teachers or parents create and develop this interest in nature that, that you have obviously had from your days back as the environmental or the Department of Environmental Conservation, and when you worked for them as an educator, how do you translate that to what parents can do today, even if they live in an urban area or rural, uh, in terms of how they can be intentional about helping their children observe and appreciate 
their everyday surroundings? Well, I think it's so important from the earliest days of childhood for parents to let their kids just kind of hang out in a natural environment. I mean, I was really lucky. I, I grew up in a suburban apartment complex, but right behind the apartments were a few acres of woods. And I could just kind of go poke around and climb a tree and look for frogs and pick daisies and just kind of feel comfortable in nature and get close to it and develop an appreciation for it. That little woods is now a housing development. It's gone. And most kids don't have the opportunity to, they get outdoors, you know, they, they get outdoors to play soccer on a long mode playing field, or they're on a playground, but they're not, you know, just sort of hanging out in the outdoors. So um, one thing that I always try to teach kids, especially the youngest kids is things like, do you know the thing about when you pick a daisy and you do the petals? He loves me. He loves me not for example. Now, daisies are not native wildflowers, so it's okay to pick them. We're not harming the environment if we pick daisies. And, you know, doing that uh, buttercup under the chin to see if you like butter, or uh, watching a butterfly, or picking up a snail and watching it crawl down a stick, you know, just that kind of just hanging out with nature. By no means do parents need to be science teachers or experts They just need to allow the child to, you know, kind of stomp through a mud puddle or pick up a caterpillar or chase after a butterfly. Well, you mentioned where you grew up uh, and that you were fortunate that uh, you were close to some wooded areas. I know in, in cities today, there's a fight about green space and how to make sure there's still parks and that uh, they're not overrun by housing developments. And uh, with regard to those who are in rural areas, and that's me as one, uh, I think we sometimes don't appreciate the opportunities that we have or our children have, because we do live more in the wide open spaces and uh, really don't think about all that surrounds us uh, in the way of of being, a, a, if you would, a classroom or a, a laboratory. Uh, for examination. What would you suggest to parents or teachers who are in uh, urban areas as far as how to bring some of these things into the classroom if they're not easily accessible so that children still have the opportunity for observation of snails or ants or, you know, are there are there certain resources that you know of in a national, so to, I guess you could say, uh, arena that people could go to or or try to seek out with regard to if the Department of uh, Environmentalists or Environmental Controls or whatever in our country or at state levels. I know, and again, I ask you that from your experience in New York State. Well, that's a really interesting question. How can we bring nature indoors for kids who can't go out? And for instance, I've done a lot of um, school programs. You know, I have Uh, 30 minutes with a third grade classroom to do a nature program. We just don't have time to go out or perhaps the schoolyard is very urban and there's not a lot of nature outside. So I have to bring nature indoors. Um, Mostly it's not a question of buying things. I mean, there are places like Carolina Biological where you can buy, you know, nature supplies to some extent, but, you know, most of us are on a tight budget, but um, I'm a collector. I collect stuff. I 
have a whole shed full of stuff that I can bring into classrooms. I pick up acorns, I pick up pine cones. Um, I look for feathers that a bird has dropped on the ground. I look for uh, anything I can find that I can bring into a classroom. And I'm just, I'm blown away by how excited kids get by seeing acorns. And I'm horrified by how few children know what they are. I've had many, many a kid look at an acorn and say, oh yeah, I saw that. There, there's a, a, a cartoon movie called Ice Age where a squirrel chases around an, an acorn and that's how they know what an acorn is, but they've never really picked one up. So I bring in as much as I possibly can of nature into the classroom, um, plants, all the whole branches of uh, crab apples or uh, autumn leaves. Or um, also I like to use live animals, although I really want to be respectful of the animal and really communicate to the kids the ethic of taking, you know, being respectful and taking care of live animals. Um, so you have to really consider, you know, you don't want to the animal to be harmed in any way. But uh, for instance, I've done so many cool classes with worms. I dig up worms out of my yeah. backyard or I buy worms at a bait shop and rescue them. And um, each child gets a worm and wax paper on their desks. And then the worm is wriggles along in the wax paper and each child gets a paintbrush so that they can very gently give the, I, I call it giving the worm a bath, just very gently drip a little bit of water onto the worm to, to help keep it moist because worms need to have their skin moist so that they can breathe. So we take very good care of the worms and then afterwards they go live in my garden. But um, I've brought in, oh, praying mantises and insects of all sorts into classrooms and kids are just fascinated by this kind of thing. Uh, I love worms. I'm glad to hear you advocating for doing projects with, with nature. So much of, I guess, my concern as a educator and as a parent is that I just see children with a lot of structured time and not as much unstructured play to kind of explore nature. Um, certainly with our technology and devices, um, much of our time is consumed with screen and reading your books. It's kind of the antithesis of that, right? We're out in a mud puddle splashing around. So I guess I would say as someone who truly believes that nature is a healer and it's part of, you know, just something that can be good for our mental and social emotional well-being. How do you encourage that? Or how would you want to share about that with parents and educators? from your perspective? Well, I agree. I think unstructured time is so important, um, particularly for the youngest kids, just time to get comfortable with nature because so many kids, well, not just kids, are scared of nature. And I think we're all just more scared of everything these days, you know, stranger danger, school shootings and germs and COVID, you know, there's a lot out there to be scared of for sure. And, um, you know, I used to work at a nature center and I would see kids get off the bus and stand on the blacktop and they were scared. They were frightened. They were really wondering, oh my God, we're going to go into the woods. There's poison ivy. There's really scary stuff. One of my books is on poison ivy. It's called Leaflets 3. And it's about poison ivy because I found kids were just obsessed with the fact that there was this poison plant out 
there. And of course, to kids, poison means death, right? You know, poison equals you're going to die. So um, poison ivy is one of those underappreciated things. It's a Native American wild plant. It's been here for countless millennia, long before people. And it's a major wildlife food, a really, really important uh, songbird survival food during the winter. So poison ivy is only a bad thing if you're a human, but you know, if you're a cardinal or a bluebird, it's like this really great plant. So I try to get kids, well, I actually get parents too, to abate their fears. And of course, the key to getting, or the key to helping lower your fear is knowledge, to learn something, to find out the truth about what you need to worry about, like COVID or school shootings, and what you don't need to worry about, like, it's okay to pick up a caterpillar. It's okay to walk through the woods. If you know what poison ivy looks like, you can avoid it. So we can help kids not be so fearful by teaching them some of the facts about nature. You mentioned that there's so much in today's world around uh, fear, whether or not it's created, what I would call artificially, or whether there's some really uh, important things that we should be fearful of, for instance, school shootings or COVID, as you mentioned. There's also a lot of discussion in, through media, and and if you're going to pay attention to things that are being written about how we're harming the environment, and that it's almost a, a question of trying to scare us into uh, being better stewards of what we have now, where we live, uh, you know, the shrinking icebergs and all that we've been told about uh, changing the climates and environment. How do you turn this into opportunities for for solutions that children that we're talking about today are going to have to be problem solvers uh, 15, 20 years from now in terms of preserving the environment? without scaring them into the world's going to end any minute now. Uh, How do we work through that with sometimes teachers, particularly of young children, don't consider themselves scientists or that they're not, science is not their strength, I'll say. So maybe that's not necessarily uh, put to children in problem solving opportunities that uh, there's a lot of emphasis on math, but how do you relate to what we can do to bring about awareness, but also from a standpoint of helping children develop the ability to solve some of the solution or to make some of the solutions that would order solve some of the problems uh, that we can anticipate in the years to come. Well, there's a wonderful quote by uh, a person who was a Senegalese environmentalist. Um, And It goes, in the end, we will conserve only what we love. And I think that's so true. We, fear is a very bad motivator. And yes, we can try to scare people into better environmental behavior, but that doesn't engender a great love for nature in most people when you're just always being scolded. I always try to get myself out of the role of being the the policeman. Oh, no, can't do that. Plastic straw, plastic fork, bad, bad, don't do that. Um, I want to look, have kids look more on the positive side. So with my books, I try to make kids 
fall in love with the outdoors, whether it's a mud puddle or a glacier or dandelions or the, the forest where the poison ivy grows or whatever. Um, I, my most recent book is about climate change and it was a very tough one to write, but I started off focusing on a glacier where you know the glaciers are melting, but focusing first on how amazing glaciers are and how beautiful they are and the incredible wildlife that live on them, the muskox and the ice worms and the, the penguins and the polar bears and you know all the wildlife that depend on glaciers. Because I want to make kids fall in love. Once you care about something, once then, then there's a motivation to learn more about it and to save it. So the rest of that quote goes, in the end, we will conserve only what we love we will love only what we understand, and we will understand only what we are taught. And so we were talking earlier about unstructured play, and that's, that's so important. But when I do, for instance, an after-school program, I want the kids to have some unstructured time to just hang out in nature. But I also want to teach them something. So I think of myself more as a, like as a facilitator than a teacher. Um, I, always, I don't like to be up on stage with everybody having to listen to me lecture. Um, I will explain something. For instance, if we put down a, a, a white, an old white bed sheet on the lawn near this tall grass here, if we wait a few minutes, crickets will start to hop onto it and we can observe the crickets. And if we want to, we can very gently use a paintbrush to uh, uh, very gently uh, touch the crickets. Um, we can observe their antennae. We can talk about their head, thorax, and abdomen. So I do some teaching, and then we just do unstructured observing the crickets and the spiders and whatever wanders across the bed sheet, for example. So blending teaching with unstructured time, because the more we learn about nature, the more we'll, I think, be motivated to try to do something about it. I'm going to ask this question for the sake of our teacher educators in early childhood education, as well as in uh, elementary education. In your experience, you've mentioned going in schools a good bit and, and doing some things that were 30 minute long programs or working with after school. And this is, of course, subjective, I know. But do you feel that teacher preparation is adequate to help build this environment? or culture of exploration and uh, appreciation so that the children can develop the love of nature, the love of exploration. And if that's not the case, are we missing the boat here by not doing better with the preparation of teachers, given what we know is coming or what is here? Well, teachers have it so tough. I'm always just blown away by how much they're expected to do in the course of the day. And is there ever anywhere near enough time for preparation? No, of course not. And it's true that teaching nature classes, learning science information to convey to kids, sure, it takes lots of preparation. I wish all teachers would have way more prep time than they get. There's also constraints on things like going outdoors, you know, with the you know, elevated security concerns taking, used to be, you know, years ago, I could just take a bunch of kids outside on the school grounds and we could wander around and many school grounds have, you know, green space around them and cool nature trails and stuff. That's, that's getting harder to do. And then when I bring stuff into the classrooms, 
nature tends to make a mess. You know, I'll do something like bring in, you know, milkweed pods and let milkweed seeds blow all over the place. And then, you know, you've, you've made a mess. You've got milkweed fluff all over the carpet that somebody's got to vacuum up. So it's definitely tougher to go that extra mile and let kids have hands-on experiences with nature, whether it's indoors or outdoors. It's, it's really difficult. And my hat is off to teachers who manage to pull it off. Well, we have enjoyed picking your brain uh, about how we can be uh, very thoughtful in what we can do as parents, grandparents, to help open up the world of nature to our children or grandchildren and uh, to include in this conversation the importance of parents and how parents in choosing whether they're going to take their children to the park on a Saturday or to the zoo or to whatever is available given their community is a decision, of course, that, that they would be making. But it also feeds into more experiences. And the more experiences that we can provide the children, hopefully they will develop this love that you're mentioning that we really hope that we can pass along from generation to generation. I'm going to ask Kenya if she has any more questions before we uh, kind of close this up. But I do want to mention your books are on Amazon for folks who would be wanting to purchase them. Is there another source that you would recommend for for folks who would be interested in uh, increasing their school library or personal library with any of the books that you've written? A school should contact the publisher for, you know, better rates um, than you can get, you know, retail. Um, I always like to push indie bookstores over Amazon. If you've got a good indie bookstore, head down there. They can order anything you want. And I have a website, AnitaSanchez.com, so you can get stuff there, too. Well, we're going to include that in our little write-up about you so that people can see that and also uh, communicate with you maybe via email if they have a question. But also we want to make sure that they know how to uh, obtain obtain the books that we've been referencing. So, Kenya, I'll let you close out with any other questions. And uh, again, I want to thank Anita for your time today. Yes, I just want to thank you so much, Anita. I hope and encourage all of our listeners to go outside next time after a rainstorm and look in your puddle. You've certainly inspired me. I'm crossing my fingers that I'm going to find some unexpected surprises and wonders. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olemiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.